You're listening to the sermon audio from Midtree Church. If you like what you heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at midtreechurch.com. As we gather this morning, Father, my, my hope and my prayer is not that we would fool ourselves into thinking that we are good enough, excellent, not broken. On the contrary, I pray that we would be willing, as this text leads us to, to look at the brokenness in ourselves, but not become completely hopeless in light of the gospel. Uh, I think of how often jealousy comes up in this text, and I think about how often jealousy comes up in my heart, and I know in the hearts of those in this room. It's, it's a part of our broken human condition, and it has been from the beginning. But Father, I pray that you would show us through your word a different way, a better way, a whole way, a perfect way, a complete way, a way in recognizing Christ's self-sacrificial love on the cross, and that by putting our eyes on that, that as we see the self-sacrifice of Christ, it would begin to squeeze out, to cut out, to, to remove from us the jealousy that is inherent in each and every one of us, so that we could live lives that are truly free to exhaust ourselves in loving one another. I pray that your word would do what it does, that it would be a sharp, sharper than a double-edged sword, that it would pierce to the spirit, to the heart, to the mind of every one man, woman, and child in this room. This is your word, and I pray that it would speak well to us this morning, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. First John chapter 3, starting in verse 11, here's what we read. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus here, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. One of the things that you'll notice very quickly in verse 11, in fact, it's one of the very first things that we see, is that this message is not new. In fact, it says verbatim, this is the message that you heard from the beginning. If we look uh, earlier in the same book, it's going to appear behind me. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son. That means remain, stay. And, the, and in the Father. But it's, it doesn't just stop there. It repeats its repetition in 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. We live in a world where there's so much information at our fingertips at all times that when something becomes repetitive, it begins to feel inefficient. I, I, have y'all noticed that? Like, if somebody's telling a story you've heard before, it's, it's somehow that becomes a torture, right? Especially if it's the same person telling the same story that you've heard before and you're like, we all got it, okay? All right, but, 
But in scripture, keep in mind, the chapters, we, we put those numbers in there. The verses, we put those numbers. When they printed this on lambskin, there was no red ink. There, there were no titles, like, like on the beginning of this one, where it said, love one another. So how is it that God's word emphasizes, puts in bold, italicizes, brings attention to something, it repeats it. Think about, think about the way God is described. He is holy. Holy, holy. This may be the only takeaway you get from the morning. And if it is, I still think it's worthwhile. The Bible is repetitive. It's never redundant. And what I mean by that is it will repeat itself. But every holy, when we think of God, serves a purpose. God isn't just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. For something to be redundant, it has to be superfluous or extra or unnecessary. Every one of those holies is incredibly important. And as we read God's word today, the re- not the redundancies, the repetition that we see is incredibly important. What is it that it's repeating? We'll continue looking in verse 11. You have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Now, the moment somebody begins preaching love, it's hard if you've grown up in the church not to be like, check, got it. I'm supposed to love people, right? Like, non-church people would say the Bible is about love, right? Like at least it's in there. I may not agree with it, but I know it talks a lot about it. But notice this, if you remember, the way that John writes this is he's gonna bring us into a theme, then into a theme. Kind of, I think the way I described it was you get on one of those swings in a theme park and you're going around and around, but you're also going up and down. And every time you're seeing from a different vantage point this reality of who Jesus is. And so that's exactly what's happening here. He's swinging around again to talk about love. But there's this contrast. And you probably noticed it when I read If you see in verse 11, it says, we should love one another. And then in verse 12, we should not. We should not what? Be like Cain. And the Bible points us all the way back. Let's look there now. Genesis chapter four. If you want to flip, that's fine. It'll appear before me. Now keep in mind what the Bible is doing. You are going from the very back. There's not many pages left. To the very front. There are very few pages before. So whatever we're about to read, Scripture is putting on display, this is not a new song. This is not a new melody. This is something that has been true. Remember from the beginning, repetitive, 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 but never redundant. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 2. And again, she, this would be Eve, bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now remember what I just read in 1 John from from verse 12. And why did he murder him? Spoiler alert, someone's about to die, okay? If you haven't picked up on that, Cain kills his brother Abel. And in 1 John, we're asked the question, why did Cain kill him? Well, we go on in Genesis 4 and we read and find out, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire 
is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. All the way from the beginning, the Bible makes very clear that sin acts like a friend and always stabs you in the back. It acts like, hey, come here, you're going to enjoy this. Come here, you're going to find pleasure. Come here, this is going to be great. But every time, without fail, it stabs you in the back. Why? Because sin is contrary, always opposed to you. Now, why does the Bible go all the way back to Genesis? All right, I've already talked about the broken record. The reason it goes, okay, two nights ago, uh, I'm upstairs. And as is common with a house full of boys, a fight breaks out. It started a fight with smiles. It did not end a fight with smiles. So typically when a fight breaks out, we'll call it wrestling at this point, at the beginning, everybody's having a good time. I'm just trying to keep it fair. I've got three boys who I'm not going to use a name for in this story. And boy number one gets, I'm not going into age either, so you really don't know who these are. (laughs) I've got them all mixed up. I thought this through because one day I do not want my son to be like, I'm never going to church again. So... So boy number one hops on top of boy number two. They're wrestling and releases biochemical warfare against his brother. I'm going to leave it at that. All right. It's still all giggles at this point. But as a dad, boy number one was bigger than boy number two. So I I, I help boy number two by holding boy number one, the flatulent one. I hold boy number one. And I say to boy number two, you can get him back if you want to. Here's what I'm thinking. What what I'm thinking is, he's going to respond in like manner, right? Not so much. I'm holding boy number one, and boy number two goes, okay, okay, okay. I'm holding boy number one with his arms behind his back. Boy number two leans back and kicks him right in the eyeball. I'm like, no, no, no. Boy number one just starts crying. He's like, Ugh. boy number two starts crying. He's like, what do I do? Dad, I thought that's what you wanted me to do. I'm just thinking, like, I'm thinking if my life was videoed, I'd lose all my children on the weekly because all you would see is a dad holding his son so the other one can kick him in the eyeball. <clears throat> and then what happens is Genesis 4, I hate you. I'm gonna kill you. And that's when the blood starts being shed. Why do I bring this up? For the same reason that John in 1 John points all the way back, you and I, apart from Christ, have no new song to sing. You and I, apart from Christ, have the same melody of darkness and destruction that we had from the time when we were young, kicking our brother in the eye, or fill in whatever illustration you need to. That is the song that is written on our heart. And the reason God's word points us all the way from the end, back to the front, is to put on display, guys, you are living a broken record life. The same song, over and over. You have heard from the beginning love, and yet you have seen from the beginning sin and brokenness in you and in the world around you. So when we come to this text, the question is, How do we love like Jesus? But it's much more specific than that. You see, it's repetitive, but it's never redundant. It's how do we love like Jesus, not like Cain? And what do we see in Cain? We see jealousy. So uh, let me just give you you the two things that I hope you walk away with this morning. Number one, jealousy prevents Christ-like love. 
Now, jealousy prevents Christ-like love for a reason because jealousy prevents Christ-like love because it is based on Christ-less living. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. So, so no, let me show you what I mean. By that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Hey guys, I'm going to go off of you. I, I, I didn't uh, write it down on my notes. 1 Corinthians 3. Because you are still worldly, for since there is envy, jealousy, and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like, I love this, merely humans? Like, just consider this. When God's word, and this is not talking to everyone, this is written to Christians. When God's word is writing to Christians and it sees jealousy and envy that is leading to strife, he looks at them and he says, guys, you're acting like mere humans. And it's like, well, I am a mere human. But in scripture, we are not. In Christ, there is this expectation that the Holy Spirit comes into us and begins to, talking about last week, rewrite the DNA of destruction that we've had from the beginning so that the Holy Spirit, so that God can expect that his children will live otherworldly type lives. So when this is written to the church at Corinth, he looks at him and he says, guys, your jealousy, which comes out of this Christless living, guys, that that jealousy is causing you to be so much less than you truly are in Christ. And all of us understand jealousy. I'm going to use my wife as an illustration here. I don't know how this is going to go. I thought about it. But she's been bringing it up anyway, so I don't see why I can't bring it up publicly. So my wife right now has a cold sore. Any other woman in this room would probably be like, how dare you say that about your wife publicly? I'm doing her a favor. Every time she gets in a conversation with someone, she's like, I'm so sorry about my cold sore. So now you don't have to do it for anyone. You can just have a normal conversation. Here's why I'm telling you this. Anytime there is a blemish on us, all we notice is everybody else's perfection, right? Like when you're walking around with, and this is the best part, she was calling, she was calling a pharmacy this past week, or a week ago, and she was getting her medication, and she was like, yeah, 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 uh, I, I need to get my birth control and herpes uh, medication, please. Yep, last name Hawk, uh, the pastor's wife. Yeah, that's right. Just need my birth control and herpes medicine. Yep, that'll be it. Just love that. I love, 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 love that. But is comparison not... And by the way, that's what it's called for those of you who aren't in the medical. I'm not, I'm not outing my wife for a testimony yet to be revealed, okay? Are you all right? You're good. I love my wife. She's so gritty. All right. You couldn't be married to me and not be gritty. All right. So all of that to say, comparison is something that we do. I don't even have to bring this up because you know it, right? Our world is about comparing to other people. But what I want us to realize is not that we compare. Yes, uh, if, if you are being convicted that you are constantly comparing yourselves to others and you're like, I need to cut Instagram, praise God, I think you should. Facebook, whatever, take a phone break, whatever it is. But here's the reality. Putting up the phone is not going to put away your comparison. All you're doing is dealing with a symptom. You're not dealing with the issue. In this room, you can look around and you compare yourselves to people. We'll be eating lunch. You'll be comparing yourselves to people. Kids will be playing Yours will be fighting, others will be not, and you'll be comparing. There's no way for us not to accept if we walk in the Spirit. But here's what I want us to realize. The moment we begin comparing, one of two things happens. We either compare and find ourselves in a shameful position. What's wrong with me? We, we look out in comparison and we say, 
why am I not that? Why am I not the way they are? Why am I not further? Why am I not smaller, better in some type of iteration? Or, and this is just as dangerous, we compare ourselves with others and instead of shame, what comes out is self-righteousness. The pendulum swings all the way from one side to the other and in self-righteousness, what we begin saying is, well, why do they have that? I deserve that. I'm better than such and such. I work harder than such and such. I think more about such and such. I deserve that. And comparison always shoots in one of those two, which is why Scripture looks at believers and it says you should not be competing with one another. 1 Corinthians 11.21 puts it this way. For in eating, let me give you some context here. So Paul is writing to a church uh, and, and they're having the Lord's Supper, which we're going to have in just a little while, while here. And in having the Lord's Supper, what happens is people come in, and if they feel like they deserve it, they go to the best place, they make the biggest plate, they get the most to drink, and they leave folks who have a lower social standing outside to get the remnants, to get the crumbs from the table. And Paul looks and he says, that's how it exists in the world. You're being merely human. God has called you to something more than this. Not to comparison that leads to shame or self-righteousness and competition amongst yourselves. No, 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 no. Here's what we read, 1 Corinthians. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. I think if you keep reading, Paul goes, what? Exclamation point. I think in certain versions of the Bible, that's what it says. He looks and he's like, you look just like the world. When instead, all of our status crumbles at the cross. All of our goods crumble at the cross. Everything that we have was given to us. Everything in a competition comparative type of way falls when everyone walks to Jesus and says, I deserve nothing and I was given everything. That's the way we live with one another. That is what love in the body looks like. Yes, it looks like serving in kids' ministry and changing diapers. And yes, it looks like being a host and opening your home. And yes, it looks like inviting people to church. It looks like all of those things. But it also looks like us looking eye to eye with one another in a way that our culture doesn't do well. You want me to prove it? We'll put this thing in a circle next week. And you can all stare at each other's faces and it'll get super awkward. Our culture stinks at this. We're bad at it. That's okay. Just own it. What God's word has for us is to look each other in the eye. You love Jesus. I love Jesus. How can I serve you? No, brother, how can I serve you? And then it becomes like Dwight Schrute and Andy in the office trying to like, you know what I'm talking about? I think Jesus is kind of cool with that. With us trying to outdo one another and showing honor to quote scripture. I I think this plays out really well when when we look at the Ten Commandments. I, I think... I think we got a slide of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so there are the Ten Commandments. Now, the first four, you'll notice, are vertical commandments. It is your relationship with God. The remaining six are horizontal relationships. In other words, how do God's people, people who, who have responded to the gospel, now on this part of redemptive history, how do they live in light of one another? And this is what I love and has always irked me at the exact same time. My spirit loves it. My flesh does not love it so much. I can read, you shall not murder. I'm like, amen, all right? And I can, I can just work down the line. Not commit adultery. Good call. Keep going. Don't steal. Deal. Do not bear false witness. Shouldn't lie. 
Awesome, don't covet. Time out, we just switched something up there. Because in all of those things, the Ten Commandments are telling me something not to do. Then all of a sudden I get to number 10 and it tells me what not to feel. That's very different. Why is it that in the Ten Commandments, all of a sudden, it moves from don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, to don't feel this? It's impossible. It is absolutely, utterly impossible. But the beauty of that is, that's exactly why it's there. The reason God gave us his law was not for me to stand up here and be like, not a murderer, 10% Christian, nailing it, all right? And then just working through. The reason God gave us the law is so that on one hand, we could see he is holy, holy, holy. Repetitive, not redundant, in all glory. And I'm not. I screw up on this. And so when, when this 10th commandment comes out, it says, you shall not covet. In fact, I, I'm going to read it to you in Exodus 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet. That, that means want, uh, lust after, desire, be jealous for. Covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. It doesn't matter if it's status. It doesn't matter if it's relationship. Whatever it is, the Bible says, don't desire that. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to tell my heart, don't want someone's status. Don't want someone's relationship. Don't want someone's stuff. I can know that I shouldn't feel that, but I can't make myself not feel that. Which is why when Jesus steps on the scene in Matthew 5, he says, I've not come to abolish this. I've come to fulfill it. I've come so that you would see how how commandment number 10 really expands into everything. For you have heard, do not murder. But I tell you, if you hate, you've already committed murder in your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you lust after someone in your heart, you have already committed adultery in your heart. All of a sudden, It becomes a heart issue. Why? Well, look at the text in verse 16. I'm going to read 16 to 18. Why is this so much about the heart? By this we know love. How, God, how do we know love? That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brother. But if anyone has the world's goods... Guys, if you're blessed with resources, if you're blessed with a nice house, if you're blessed with whatever, the Bible sees that simply as a tool. It's not a status symbol in the Bible. The status symbol in the Bible is humility. Those who go last are first. Those who have the least will receive the most. But the Bible doesn't say that stuff is bad. It just says if your motive is wrong. So if you have a nice house, use it for the Lord. If you have a lot of resources, it's a tool. This building is a tool. That screen is a tool. It can very quickly become an idol. We move on. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, keep in mind, this is being written to Christians. Do I think we should love on people who are not Christians? Yes, absolutely. But if that's true, we really ought to love each other. Right? Like whatever sympathy, empathy, and love and affection we can feel for someone that is in need. Somebody came up to me, Mercy came up to me today. You'll see something on Instagram about a family that's in need. Yes, love them. But if you're going to love them, the person who's two seats in front of, behind, or beside you, we ought to love more. But we're, we're in this family together. And so it goes on and it says, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love 
Abide in him. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The cross is the motive. The cross is the benchmark. Do you want to know if you're loving the world's way, merely human, or loving God's way? It's not complicated. Is it self-sacrificing? Is it? When, when you commit an act, is it self-sacrificing? And we have to be careful with that because sometimes we're self-sacrificing so other people will notice how very self-sacrificing we are. That's not self-sacrificing, okay? All right, that's self-building. And then I, I think the other thing that we must notice in this, jealousy does prevent Christ-like love because it's based on Christless living. But why was Cain jealous in the first place? His brother did good and he did not. This is This is the last main point. Good, the right way, will be opposed in every single age. If you're a note taker, this is the time to pull out the pen. Good will be opposed in every age. We saw it in Genesis with Cain and Abel. And the moment we read it, what should happen where Cain goes and he kills his brother and God comes and he says, where's your brother? And Cain's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God's like, I can hear his blood crying out to me from the ground, okay? I'm asking you, sort of like I'm like, Adam, Eve, where are you? I know where they are. I'm giving you a chance to come forward. When we read that passage, what happens in our heart, what should happen in our heart, is all of a sudden we go, that's not fair. Abel didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he did something right and he's dead for it. Well, I think that's part of the lesson. Christian, this isn't your world. Try to be fair in everything you do, in your business dealings, in the way that you treat people. Try to be fair, but don't expect the world to be fair to you, all right? Some of you may have felt that way after a basketball game last night. I don't know. Some of you may have. But if you're walking around expecting the world to be fair to you, Christian, I don't have anything to tell you except the Bible says you're kind of being foolish. It is opposed to you. So shoot for being fair and just in all of your dealings, but don't expect the same. Not here. It'll come later. So, so we see that in Genesis, but it's in every age. Think about Christ. You could go to any number of stories. But I, I think in Luke 8, Jesus walks up on this dude who's like covered up in demons. Just like, the, he's like naked and probably bites things, chained up, lives outside of the city. The dude is about as bad and ostracized as you can be. Jesus walks up and he's like, demons, get out of there. And the demons are like, yes, sir. All right, not a problem. Uh, instead of banishing us to utter gloom and despair, can you send us somewhere else? Jesus is like, sure, go in those pigs. They then run down a cliff and die. Nonetheless, the demons go, the pigs run off a cliff, and they die. Do you know what happens in that town? Jesus did good, exceeding good. The town comes out, and they're like, what happened to all of our pigs? Okay, something crazy just happened with this guy. This is a little too weird for us. Jesus, you need to leave. Something good happens, and they oppose it. And look, I can't write biblical history, but I'm willing to bet that the farmer or the farmers who lost those pigs, Jesus would have been happy to explain to them two things. Number one, this man's health is better than financial gain. Secondly, I can take care of your needs. And I know this because one chapter later in nine, Jesus is like, everybody's hungry. Let's get a little bread and fish and I'll just feed 5,000 people. He could handle it. Good is opposed in every age. New Testament. Just, uh, just throw this up real quick. These are scriptures from the New Testament showing all of the different ways that people were persecuted. We good? I can skip it if we're not. There we go. 
That's not all of them, by the way. There's another page of them. Go ahead and flip to the next page. That's not all of them, by the way. There's another one. And I got tired of making the list. I could have kept going. My point is, all throughout the New Testament, there's this expectation that the world is going to be opposed. Why do I bring this up? So let me bring this home. Going back to the pigs. They ought to have rejoiced with that man. They knew his despair and his brokenness, the life that he had lived day after day, week after week, month after month, in a broken record of despair. And instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, they got scared, they got worried, and they pushed away from good. This is so our world. Have you ever seen someone get a job that you deserved more? Could you rejoice with them? It's wedding season. You're single. And you keep getting invitations to wedding after wedding after wedding. Can you rejoice with them? You've been trying to get pregnant for three years, five years, ten years. And all of your friends keep having babies. Can you rejoice with them? What I'm saying is hard, but it is not untrue. Only in Christ can we be more than merely human. And hurt ourselves and yet rejoice with those who rejoice because we know that something better is coming. God teaches us to number our days aright. Uh, Even today, Frank, you came and shared about Voice of the Martyrs and and Asia Harvest. When when I read James 124, I read this. Count it all joy, all. You don't get to pick and choose. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That doesn't exist in a different worldview outside of Christ. Count every difficult thing joyful. And then it goes even further. You know that the testing of your faith, these trials are going to test your faith. That invitation is going to test your faith. It produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't run from the good in another's life. Celebrate it with them. Don't be jealous that you may be perfect and complete Not lacking anything. Repetitive, absolutely redundant, not a bit. Perfect without blemish. That is very different than complete. The race is finished, which is even different than lacking nothing. So God moves us further and further. The thing is, good will be opposed in every age. It it, it will happen. If life goes for another hundred years, good will be opposed in every age, but every age will fail to overcome good. Hasn't happened yet, and it's not going to happen. Let me close this out with this. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns, make no mistake, Cain's heart was condemned. The question is, What happens when those Ten Commandments come up? What happens when you hear about jealousy? When you hear about love needing to be self-sacrificing for it to be Christ-like? Does your condemnation, like Cain, push you to jealousy and shame, which would be non-religion? Does it push you to jealousy and self-righteousness, which is just empty religion? Or does it push you to the gospel? Up to this point, I've really only spoken to Christians. But I have no doubt that there's someone in this room, maybe some ones, who are checking out Christianity for the first time. Or you've been thinking about it, wrestling with it. What I want you to realize is what comes next. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. 
I don't know what sins you have committed. I don't know what kind of pressure you are under. I don't know how broken you feel, but I do know this. God's love, his sacrifice, his redemption is greater than any sin. And it goes on and it says, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. We cannot hide our sins from God any more than Cain could hide Abel from God, any more than Adam and Eve could hide their nakedness from God, any more than anyone in this room can hide anything from God. And as fearful as that can make it sound, don't push away from the good because what God offers you is the self-sacrifice of his son. All you have to do is ask and God would forgive you of those things and pull you into a life that is so much more than merely human. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. That's actually my favorite part of this passage. And the reason is, since God is all-powerful and all-knowing and he's left us here after responding to the gospel, it means, Christian, you wrestling with sin and you being in a sin-soaked world must be for a God-ordained reason. Do you understand what I'm saying? All right, this is it. Perk up. Don't miss this. If you're a Christian and you are frustrated with the sin that you're still struggling with, that broken record from Genesis 3, Genesis 4, that is still playing in your life, what I'm telling you is God left it there for a reason. You could have responded to the gospel, church camp, whatever. You go to the back of the church and all of a sudden God's like, awesome, good, get up here. He can handle that. He left you here for a reason, fighting sin for a reason. And when we sing, Bennett, are we about to sing Jesus is better? Sweet. When we sing Jesus is better, when, when I say Jesus is better than all of my sorrows, Jesus is better than all of my wanderings, Jesus is better than, give me one, all of my riches. Thank you. Way to go, church. All right. Worshiping together. I like it. I'm not just saying Jesus is better than a better house. I'm not just singing. We're not just singing. Jesus is better than a better marriage, a better relationship, a better job, a better this. We're saying the needing of Jesus is better than the not needing of Jesus in the first place. We're saying it's better for me to have gone through darkness than to have not gone through darkness. Because what happens, and we see this all through scripture, the darker our world is, the brighter the, Christ, the, the, brighter the cross is. The darker every one of your sins, every one of your brokenness is, they become deep, dark notes. And God leaves them there. And he leaves them there and he adds redemptive themes on top. I want to show you this. Um, uh, I'm, I'm about to play for you guys Pachelbel's Canon ND. Canon means there's a repeat, all right? The tech team is not screwing up. It's going to glitch. It's going to glitch because I built it to glitch. Turn it up a little bit, a little bit more. These eight notes repeat over and over. Number two, repeat over and over and over. The same deep, heavy notes throughout the entire song. It will not stop. They will continue. Just like Cain and Abel, those same dark notes, they pass through humanity and that same broken record is what we live with our own lives. No one at a wedding when this plays sees the bride at this point. They stand up and they begin to look. Why do they look? Because they know something better is coming. And that's exactly what the song does and that's exactly what scripture does. Now listen to it in entirety. The same notes, the same darkness, the same sin, and the same brokenness. But then all of a sudden, another note comes in. It doesn't take away the brokenness. It doesn't take away the darkness. But all of a sudden, into the darkness, this new melody is played on top. That there's this promise of a redeemer. 
And then another round comes. And we see who that redeemer is in Christ. And then it goes on and it goes on. And the New Testament church builds. Same dark notes. Same brokenness. Same sin that we wrestle with day in and day out. That Cain and Abel did. That Adam and Eve did. This is our broken record. But God doesn't just remove those eight notes. He uses them. And he uses them because it puts on display the glory of his nature in saving sinners. And better than that, your song stops just being dark notes. And he begins using you as the redemptive themes in the lives of people around you. Yeah, amen. You can cut that. And when I think of a wedding... I think of the fact that we stand up and we look for something that is yet to be revealed. And more notes come in as the bride walks down. And then, standing in front of her groom, which is who Christ is to his church, a new life begins. That's a life apart from jealousy. That's a life apart from self-seeking. That's a life that we find only at the cross of Christ. Let me pray, and then we will respond by going to the cross receiving communion. Father, you are abundantly good to us. The notes of our song are deep and somber and dark. All it does is remind us of our brokenness and our sin and the sin of this world. But you are good. Not only do you play a new song over it, you allow the brokenness to remain. That we would know where we came from to see the great love and glory of our God who offers to any who would come to him to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. That he lived a love that was absolutely self-sacrificial. His body broken, his blood poured out to call us to a life that is so much more than merely human. So as we come to this table, may it remind us not to rush or go first, not just here, but in all things of life, because every one of us comes to the cross with dark tones, and every one of us leaves the cross with a new melody to sing of the glories of our God. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.